just want to highlight that hymn that we just sung a little bit. It is so relational. Um, you know, when it talks about the treasures of the trial form within me as I go. Speaking of this life, it can be a trial. And those trials do shape us. They do form within us. At the end of this long passage, I take this to be a metaphor of life. Let me leave them at your throne. May the life that I live bring God glory uh, when it is all said and done. Uh, May this journey bring a blessing. May I rise on wings of faith. At the end of my heart's testing, with your likeness, let me wake. Um, Let's just try to sing this a cappella here, if I can find the note here to get us started, all right? Uh, Here we go. Let the treasures of the trial form within me as I go. And at the end of this long passage, let me leave them at your throne. May this journey bring a blessing. May I rise on wings of faith. And at the end of my heart's testing, with your likeness, let me wave. That hymn is just so timely, given our passage today. We're going to be in James chapter 4. And we're going to reflect on how our life fits with God. And there have been billions of people who've lived and died before you and me. These people had skills, they had stuff, and none of it mattered. We don't remember their skills or their stuff. I mean, there's a few historic people that stand out. But by and large, the billions, they lived, they've shown people their skills, they've shown people their stuff, it did not matter. But to the degree they showed someone the glory of God, it mattered greatly, did it not? Uh, They left a legacy. Just one person that they impressed upon that person, the glory of God, they left a legacy. Uh, If you'd open with me to James chapter 4, and as we do, I just want you to think of that time in life when you were first entering into life, and and if you're a teenager or maybe you're in your early 20s, you're still there. You're still, maybe you've even got some anxiety about this. For the rest of us, maybe you remember the time when you were in your teens and 20s, and there was that uncertainty. For some of you, it was a question of getting into the right school. Uh, You were applying and getting into the right school was a big deal. Uh, For others, it was the question of passing an exam, uh, an NCLEX or uh, whatever, MCAT or whatever whatever degree you're in, a a, a CPA exam. Or perhaps for you, you went the entrepreneurial route and for you it was getting financing. Uh, having, having a business plan and putting a plan together and getting financing. And maybe you're along in life now and life is rolling and you no longer question, am I going to succeed? Now you're just questioning your choices. It's a matter of choices. Do I really want to spend the rest of my life doing this? Would I rather do this or would I rather do that? Would I rather work here or would I... Rather work there. You don't have anxiety because you're already successful. You're already rolling along. Can I say it this way? You've arrived. 
No, now I, I, I'm talking to Christians, so I bet a bunch of you recoiled at that, right? As soon as I said, you've arrived, because you've got choices, you've arrived, you recoiled. There's something in you as a Christian that said, oh, I wouldn't say it that way. Well, why not? That's what the rest of the world would say. Why do we not say it that way? Why does that not quite fit? It's because of this thing called the fear of God. It's not a debilitating fear at all. Christians are bold. It's not debilitating, but it's shaping. It shapes our perception of life, of opportunity, of God and his involvement in all of this. And it's a relational involvement. That's why I like that hymn that we just sung, talking about this life as a journey, asking God to allow the journey, its successes and its trials to shape us. That is what James is going to help us do here today. If you look at James 4, verse number 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows to do the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. God, I pray you'd open your word to us today and open our hearts to us. Help us, God, to see where we need to be corrected by your word. Help us to be sanctified. Help us to please you. Help us to walk with you. Be glorified in our life's journey, Lord. Please shape us in it. Give us faith. Give us strength for every day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, James invites his readers here today into a debate that will examine their presumptuous expectations and their presumptuous approach to life. He's inviting them into a debate. That's the first two words. Come now. Come now. Let's talk about this. Let's have a little debate. You, uh, he, he says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, this is presumption. We're going to go into a certain town, we're going to trade, and we're going to make a profit. This is presumptuous. Do you, do you see it? Do you see the presumption? Maybe not, because it, it really just sounds like normal life and business to most people. Uh, that, that's the way we do business. We, we just lay out a plan. We're going to go into such a town. We're going to buy and sell and trade, and we're going to make profit. That's the plan. Who are these presumptuous people that James is addressing? It's a different culture. In the Roman Empire, uh, there were two classes of wealthy individuals, two classes of people controlled wealth. One class is the gentry class. They're the landowners. So if you think lords and ladies, if you think Downton Abbey, okay, uh, you, you're, you're not in a different culture, but you're, you're kind of in the right ballpark. They own land, and so they get tenant farmers, and they give those tenant farmers a house and a place to plant their little garden, and then they work the fields, and they, they, they live off of the land somewhat. They might get a stipend on top of that, but they are the gentry, the lords and ladies, the landowners, and that's one class of people that you would have. The other class is the merchant class, uh, the bankers and the merchants, the tradesmen. Uh, they, they were oftentimes much more wealthy, but they were never quite as respected as the landowners. So, so what they lost in respect, they gained many times in money. Now, think about who James is writing to here. He is writing to Jews who have been displaced. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. If you just turn back two pages in your Bible, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, 
we took this time, we were understanding this to be, and I still do, that these are Jewish believers after the stoning of Stephen, when the gospel was just being preached to the Jews, according to the book of Acts, but they were displaced from their homelands. And Jews have often been displaced from the promised land. So they cannot be a gentry class as they seek success. What are they going to be? They're going to be bankers and tradesmen. And so that would be the class of people that, that James is addressing here today. Uh, now, the other thing that's kind of interesting is these seem to be saved people, at least the possibility. The way James is talking to them, they seem to be saved. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, which is going to address the gentry, the landowners. And this is just circumstantial to what, as I'm understanding, to what James is writing, but he writes to them as if they're unsaved. Uh, Look at verse number 17 today where this winds up. James admonishes them in chapter 4, verse 17, these, these merchants, whoever knows to do the right thing, to do, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Okay, that's the way you would talk to a Christian, right? I, yeah, let me get your attention. If you know what's right to do and you don't do it, it's a sin against God. That sounds like I'm talking to a Christian. That sounds like I'm correcting them. Okay, look at chapter 5 and um, verse number uh, 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eating. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That sounds like eternal damnation. That sounds like condemnation. And look at verse number 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So, we see that, that, that we're dealing with landowners in verse, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It seems like, and we'll just keep an eye on this as we get into next week's text, it seems like these are unsaved people that James will be addressing in chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. It sounds like today we're dealing with merchants, and circumstantially as James addresses them, they would seem to be saved people who are very wrong in the way they are living their life, in the way they're referencing how they do business. Now, let's just look a little bit. One other thing about ancient business um, has to do with location. Because he says, we're going to go into such and such a city. Certain cities had prime location for merchandising, for trading. And Corinth would be one example. Uh, Corinth is at the south end of Greece. You've got the north end of Greece and Athens on one side, Corinth in the other. You've got one little bitty tract of land connecting the two. So guess what you have? You have a choke point for trade, for travel. For people coming by bringing goods that you can pull off of the cart and purchase. For people coming by who want to buy goods that they can't get in their home area or where they're going. Additionally, though, Corinth has another advantage because it's also a trade route from, uh, from east to west. Uh, if you want to get from the, uh, from the Algean Sea to the Adriatic Sea, uh, Adriatic Sea, you have to go through these harbors, these natural harbors here. If you go down around the Horn, that's very dangerous. Uh, the safer route is to take a boat up into this natural harbor and then either take the goods over land or if your boat's small enough, they would roll them over on logs. Just leave the boat full, roll it up and over, and then you would have another very long harbor. And today there's a, there's a, uh, a canal that's been dug through there. Uh, that, that, that piece of land is called an isthmus, if I'm pronouncing that right. So basically, if you're a tradesman, this is a no-brainer. 
Corinth is a no-brainer. I mean, it's got north-south trade. It's got east-west trade. They're both meeting. You know, X marks the spot. This is where we're going to go. We're going to make a lot of money. Jericho was like this as well on land. Uh, in, in, uh, in Israel, you have uh, Jerusalem up at the top of the hills. You had the ascent of Adamim, uh, which was well-traveled. And during the time of year that you could cross the Jordan, you could go on over into the land of Jordan, Ammon and Moab. Uh, but you also had the north-south, the Jordan Rift, a lot of traffic there. So Jericho was so rich and wealthy in Abraham's day because it was at a crossroads. So understand the ancient mer- merchant, just what's going on here. They're saying, hey, we've got the ability to trade. We know the right people to get these goods. And we can get these goods and we can take them to this city where there's just all of this traffic. And, and we can buy, we can sell This will be a profitable venture. So I'm asking you this today. Is it wrong to be good at what you do? Is that what James is saying? It's wrong to be good at what you do. Is James saying it is wrong to have a business plan? It's wrong to be good and it's wrong to have a plan. Is it wrong to be good? Is it wrong to have a plan? And is it wrong to be reasonably assured that you might be successful? I have gone to the banker with business plans multiple times. And you lay out, here's the business that I hope to have. Here's the product. Here's the pricing. Here's the promotional materials. And here's a way of distributing everything. Here's how we hope it'll work. Here are some projected revenues. Is that a sin to present a banker a plan saying, here's the city I want to do a business in. Uh, We want to buy. We want to sell. We want to make gain. And here's what I'm projecting. Is all of that a sin? I would suggest to you that having a business plan is not a bad thing. It is a very good thing. But my banker and your banker had better have a very different presentation of that plan from you as a Christian than he would have from an unsaved person. An atheist would have a very different presentation of that plan than you or I. So as we continue here, uh, one of the differences is that we live with a constant awareness of our human fragility, that we are alive temporarily on God's earth. Verse number 14, James's point is you're, you're, you're making all these assertions, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The fact that we are alive in this life temporarily is true of Christians. It's true of non-Christians. The difference is God calls Christians to be ever mindful of our temporary nature, to be living in light of it. The atheists, they do their best to ignore death. Uh, They don't want to talk about death. They don't want to think about death. The natural man's mindset is, if I'm no longer alive, what does any of this matter? I'm a plumber. I own a building. I own some trucks. I hire some guys. I get some loans. But the moment I'm dead, what does it all matter? I don't care. Whereas a Christian cares very much. I'm a plumber. I own a building. I, I, am, I, I am a steward of some guys and their work and their lives. And one of these days, I will die and I will operate my plumbing shop based on that fact today in a certain way. 
It makes a difference in how I operate my life. Uh, Take King David, for instance. Um, uh, He lived, he died, and the fact that he's not living in Jerusalem today and reigning doesn't matter to us. But how he lived, how he pointed out the glory of God matters tremendously. And, And so the Christian's mindset is that everything matters in our work, in how we reference our work, because God matters. It's not you that matters. It is the God you serve that matters. Your life will end. Your skills and your stuff will mean nothing. But how you point to God will mean everything. God wants you and me to live our lives mindful of our fragile and temporary nature. The idea of fragility here is found in the word mist in verse number 14. Do you see the word mist? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will hold. What is your life? For you are a mist. That word mist is amazing because it appears in the book of Ecclesiastes. Different language, the Hebrew language, but the exact same word, mist. And here's how it's translated in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2. Vanity of vanities. That is literally mist of mist. You're not just mist, you're mist of mist. <laughs> you're, you're the byproduct of a mist. I mean, you, you are so temporarily, you are, you are so thin, so temporary, so leaving and departing like mist. Vanity of vanities, says the preachers. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What's his point? He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. This is exactly the point of Ecclesiastes. Your life is a mist. It is a temporary commodity. And James is pointing out these facts in human life as well. That all humans, no matter how rich, no matter how famous, no matter how powerful, are temporary. If I could say this carefully, your life is not that which gives the world substance. You will live, you will die, and the world will continue without you, no matter who you are, no matter how important you are. I hope you have lived your life in such a way that when you die, we will miss you. We will feel a sense of loss. But life will go on for those who remain. And God wants you to be ever mindful of this. Proverbs 27.1 says, uh, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. This is wisdom literature throughout the Scripture. Not boasting is if you have tomorrow to live, because you don't know what could happen today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12 to see how, uh, this is just a beautiful text that Jesus deals with in a parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. I want to read the parable, but then I also want to see where Jesus was going with the parable and see how this application really lines up with today's text as well. Luke chapter 12, verse number 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. This is a guy who had a savings account, a retirement account, that was stocked. He's like, Oh, Look at those zeros. I mean, 
We're not talking about enough today. We're not talking about for enough money for tomorrow. We are talking about I have enough for many years. It's an incredible amount of money. That's this guy's attitude. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Does God want you living the life with this idea that you have many years? That it's just a given. You have many years. Verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And in Jesus' words there, I think we have a bit of the insight as to why God wants us to be always aware of the fact that our lives are a mist, that we are a temporary commodity. Because when we live as if we have many years, we are not rich toward God. But when we realize on a day-to-day basis that I could die tonight, I could be gone tomorrow, I better be rich toward God. I better be investing in things that count for eternity. And then look where Jesus goes with this in verse number 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore, here's an application for you. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor your body, what you will put on. Now, this is the paradox of being a Christian. You would think that being aware of the fact that you're going to die at any moment, that you, you would think that that would be debilitating. Uh, you would think that that would cause you to fear. Is this the moment? <laughs> and uh, uh, God's going to strike me down now, maybe? Uh, that's not the application. The application is God has got this. God has got you. And so because you could be reporting to him at any moment, do not be anxious about today. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. But trust him. This is his program. This is a relationship between you and the God of the universe. The same one who created all of this amazing stuff is the same one who takes care of you tomorrow. Verse 23, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Drop down to verse number 29. God God uses the illustration of birds of the air, but drop down to verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. In other words, don't be pressed into the world's mold. Everybody in this world is worried about how much money they can accumulate. How lovely they can feather their nest so they can enjoy that nest for many, many years. That's the world's mold. Do not let the world press you into its mold. Instead, verse 31, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For, here we go, here's a purpose statement. For, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Have you ever sold something valuable and given the proceeds to the poor? This text says that would be a very good thing to do. That would be a very, very good thing to do. To let it go into eternity as a statement of faith and trust. So here's an application. Do not delight in your ability to fortify yourself, to provide for yourself. 
That is presumptuous. Delight in God who gives you even this day to be alive in it. Be rich toward God. If you have God, you have his security. He wants this relationship. So God is not rebuking business plans here. What is being rebuked is a self-sufficient attitude. It is an arrogance of self-sufficiency that is based on a presumption that you have got many years ahead of you. Your life is a journey designed by God. God gave you today. That means God is sustaining you today. This is a reality that Christians live in the light of. We live in God. We live with God today, mindful of him. He commands this. And God is a relational God in this sense. God did not design you to be a wind-up alarm clock that he winds up for 80 years and then sits on a shelf and lets you do your thing. Click, 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 click. God designed you for daily, constant relationship with him. To live life unmindful of God, just think about what it is. Just to live your life, not mindful of God. I'm just living my life. It's Monday. Why would I be mindful of God on Monday? I'm just living my life. It's like going on a honeymoon, unmindful of your spouse. What's the point of a honeymoon? It's relational. It's not the des- I mean, honeymoons are nice destinations, right? Nice food, nice, nice activities, nice destinations. But the point of a honeymoon is relational. What is the point of a honeymoon if you're not going to be relational, if you're not going to be mindful of your spouse? What is the point of living a life created by God if you're not going to be mindful of him and fellowshipping with him? And just a side note to drive this point home, honeymoons, not being mindful of your spouse, there is such a thing now. Our world does not fail to pervert everything under the sun, including honeymoons. They now have solo moons. Solo moons. That's where you go do your thing, she goes does her thing to celebrate your marriage, and then you come together afterwards. This is from uh, Yahoo Finance. The practice of, uh, this is the practice of, a, of newly married couples taking separate vacations, abandoning the traditional honeymoon for reasons like disagreement in locations. Wow. <laughs> we're married, we're planning our honeymoon. She wants to go to the beach. I want to go to the mountains. You go where you want to go. I'll go where I want to go. We'll meet up afterwards. Yeah, fine. Let's do that. But this is presented in much more positive notes than that. Disagreement in locations, conflicting work schedules, or different personalities. (laughs) I can't put up with you a whole week on the beach. (laughs) Sorry. No. So let's get married, but you go celebrate your way, I'll go celebrate my way, and we'll meet up afterwards. Does that seem to lack relationship? You think? (laughs) Is this your approach to God? You created me. Now, God, I'll live my life, and I'll see you when it's over. Or, (laughs) in your pride, God, you've got me for all of eternity. So give me, you know, give me my 70 years, okay? Because you get me for all of eternity. Oh, my. Oh, my. I hope that's not your attitude. Um, God is a relational God. He has designed this journey for you. 
He expects you to be mindful that your life today is sustained by him. He expects you to walk with him, to pray to him, to talk with him, and to lean upon him for sustenance, for strength. As we look at the next verse here, God demands acknowledgement of his providence in our conversation. Verse 15. James chapter 4, verse 15, instead. Now that instead is, is counteracting what was said in verse 13. You who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such a city. Okay, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So God is the author of your life today, whether or not you're going to live today, it's if he wills. And God is also in charge of the this or that. And he wants you to say these things. So notice that he is emphasizing our words. It says in verse number 15, for you ought to say. This is not lining up with our culture's attitude and point of view that your religion is a private affair. Keep it to yourself. No, God is here and he demands being acknowledged with your words. Jesus and the apostles lived this out for us quite extensively. We see this in their correspondences. We see this in the narratives. Now, it's not that they made God willing a mantra that they had to say, like, you know, may the king live forever, may he live forever. Every time you say the king's name, you know how in certain cultures, may he live forever. Uh, yeah, these little mantras. It's, it's not like they turned God willing, if the Lord wills, into this little mantra that they said every time. But, but they did say that many times. Other times, uh, Paul would say, pray for me that I might come to you. Jesus bathed the details of his life in prayer to his heavenly Father. You, you see the petitions in the New Testament epistles. Here are some examples where the Apostle Paul just literally said, God willing. Okay, 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 19, you don't have to turn there. The notes are in your, references are in your notes. He said, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. He said that to the Corinthians. And then as he's closing the letter in chapter 16, verse 7, he said, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So not only do I want to come, but I hope to have a long stay with you if the Lord permits. He literally added those words. In Romans chapter 15, uh, writing to people he had not met before, a church he had not visited before. He said uh, in chapter 15, verse 23, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. I appeal to you in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed. In your company. So the words, if the Lord wills, do not have to be always present as if they were some mantra or some vain repetition, but the attitude has to be there all the time. Words you ought to say. It has to include words at some point you ought to say. Prayer requests, attitudes that are more certain of God's goodness than of your own planning abilities. James is telling us today that you must have the words if the Lord wills in your plans. You must have the words. You may be out this week and you may catch yourself in a moment of presumption. I do this where I say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to come and I'm going to do that for you. 
And then you might be thinking of this passage, and you might say, if God gives me life and breath <laughs> and the ability to go. Uh, you, 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 uh, yes, I can do that for you if God allows, and, and I, I certainly plan to if God gives me the ability to do so. A comment like that with an unbeliever might spark a little dig or a little inquiry. What did you just say? <laughs> and you could just say, I, I, I'm sorry, I was being presumptuous. I just, I, I, I just always want to be careful in life because God is real. He is my creator, my sustainer. And, and sometimes my words don't reflect that reality. And you might just find you have a divine appointment to share Christ with somebody just by the way you correct yourself in public. As I said earlier, we do fear God, but it's not a paralyzing fear. We are not paralyzed into inaction. We do not say to the world, I cannot commit to your project because God may not allow me to live that long. (laughs) We are to commit our way to the Lord as we lay out plans, acknowledging that even our best plans may not be God's will. Have you ever had God use your mistakes for good things? Have you ever laid out a plan and it was a total failure and then you look back on it and you see that God positioned me in a different way. God humbled me. God prepared me. Or God used the failure in greater ways in the end. We have to have a hard attitude that allows for God to take our plans and say, actually, no, I don't, Will. You're going to fail at that and it's going to be good for you. One other application I would make is this. You cannot say if the Lord wills to a plan that is against his revealed will. You know, if God wills, I'm going to go over to my neighbors and steal all their gold and jewelry this week, right? That, you know God doesn't will that. So uh, you know, just having this mindset of if the Lord wills, uh, it does cause you to stop and say, wait a minute. Do I know already that God would never will for me to do what I'm planning to do in my mind? Because sometimes our plans are sinful, We are accommodating some lust that we know is wrong. James' readers were sinfully self-impressed. I would like to say I'm so glad I'm never sinfully self-impressed. But they were sinfully self-impressed. And I think I can identify with that both individually and as a culture. Look at verse number 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Have you ever heard anybody say, yeah, I did such and such and I don't care? Because I don't have to care. I can boast in my evil. There is a human arrogance that we tolerate in ourselves, but it's more than just tolerating. It is celebrating. Yeah, I'm proud and I'm proud of it. You see, unbelievers brag about not needing religion as a crutch. That's arrogance. They're bragging in their arrogance. I don't need God. I don't need that crutch in my life. I'm bigger and better than needing God. I even wonder at our emphasis on health and wellness issues. If we don't think, oh, yeah, you know, I eat this and I exercise that and and I do this and that, as if we're going to add time to our lives. Be very careful of your heart behind health and wellness issues. 
Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, you cannot acknowledge God without speaking words at some point. I mean, you can acknowledge God through your actions, but there are words involved here. The proverb says, In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Humbly acknowledge God. Do you carry yourself with an air of arrogance? And are you even just a little bit proud of your arrogance? I can be arrogant and I can get away with it because I am who I am. These people were boasting in their arrogance and it is evil. And James ends with this admonition that I believe tells me he's dealing with Christians, that these are things all of us can struggle with. Conscious awareness of neglecting God's glory is a sin. In verse number 16, 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's very easy to just leave God out. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm with a bunch of pagans and they don't want to talk about God and so I'm just going to leave God out of the conversation. I mean, do you ever feel that awkwardness? We're at work. We're talking to our banker. (laughs) We're there for money, not religion, right? And um, we're talking to our boss or we're talking to an employee or a customer. Is this really the place to bring up God? We ask ourselves, is this really the time and the place? The fact of the matter that this place is God's place. And the only one we should ultimately be worried about is offending the God who owns the place and runs the place. The God who determines whether you're going to be in this place tomorrow or whether you're going to be in his presence tomorrow. And practically speaking, your banker needs Christ. That customer uh, needs Christ. If Christians are not going to teach the world about an ever-active awareness of God on a day-to-day basis that treats him as real, and the real founder and sustainer of the universe, who will teach them? Have you ever been in a hurry to get where you were going, and all of a sudden you run into a divine appointment? You know, you just, "Ah, I want to go here, my family's there, all these activities are going, and here's somebody who needs a word from Christ. That can happen. That can happen in business. And, and, and the signal to the Christian is it's okay to stop and to spend some time here. I know we've got business to do. I know we've got things to do. I know we've got a schedule. I, I know we've got a mission statement in our corporation, whatever it might be. But this is a divine appointment, and it is worthy of my time. You may find yourself uttering a presumptuous word this week. You may recognize it. You may feel the need to add the comment, if God is willing to give me life and breath, I will do that. Those words may generate an inquiry. You may have to clarify where you stand with God, and it may turn into a divine appointment that is much more important for anything else you had planned for that day. And that may be your last day on this earth. A very good appointment to end with. So today's text, verse 13, presumption. Verse 14, You're a mist. Don't be presumptuous. Verse 15, life comes from God. Verse 16, uh, we are not just arrogant. We boast in our arrogance. 
and verse 17, leaving God out is a sin. If you wondered, it is a sin. God cares about your words. He cares about your attitudes. He cares that you recognize that your life is a result of his creating act as well as his sustaining act every day. This should not freeze you in fear. This should make you bold in the face of eternal life. A week ago, we lost a pastor out east, Tim Keller. He and his wife, Kathy, we've read their book, The Meaning of Marriage, here in the church. We may have read some of their other books as well. And... um, He talked about, I saw a video, I'm sure I'm going to butcher the quote and everything, but he talked about how he and Kathy were approaching his death. His his death was quite certain, pancreatic cancer. And uh, they had uh, close to, I think, a two-year warning that it was coming, but coming it was. And and so he was asked, you know, uh, about whether or not they cry about this. And he said, absolutely. Absolutely, we cry about the fact that, you know, my, my departure is coming. We will have to soon depart one another. But he said, here's the thought that we have. And, and he said, he said it, it comes from this. He said, in my mind, there is no way you can convince me. There is no way intellectually you can convince me that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. Spiritually, intellectually, I just can't buy that. I know Jesus rose again from the dead. And so Kathy and I have this mindset, even though, yes, we cry about my departure, if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. It's good. Christians are far from defeated by the knowledge that life is daily a gift from God. We are emboldened. We are purposeful. Are you prepared to live and to succeed this week? That's my prayer for you, is that whatever you're putting your hand to do, you will be successful. That you will live this entire week in health, and that your plans will come to pass, that you will be prosperous, that you'll be successful. Know that that is what I am praying for every single one of you. That you will return here next week rejoicing in God's goodness. But what if this is your last week? What if against all of my hopes, all of my prayers, this is your week to enter into God's presence? I hope you have the confidence of others who have preceded you. I hope you have the confidence in Jesus Christ who died for you and who rose again from the dead that everything will be fine. In fact, it'll be more than fine. It's good to be in the presence of God. It is good. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word today, I do pray that you would cause your word to change us. Father, help us to be about so much more than skills and stuff. Lord, help us to be about your glory. I pray that the things we say and do this week would have legs. That, uh, Father, we would plant the seed of your glory in and around our culture, in and around our world. And that, Father, there would be decades and perhaps even centuries, perhaps even centuries of change if Jesus tarries that long. I pray that you would infuse our words with meaning and purpose and that all would be centered on you. Help us to recognize you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be your children. Thank you for today, Lord. Help us to honor you in it. Bless us in it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.